Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As I'm sure you know, Team Human is a labor of love supported by teammates like Ellie Hoftelang, Liz, David Kaufman, Ewan Kenny, and Barbara Foner. You too can become a supporting member of Team Human by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get stuff and love and access to our Discord channel and special live salon events and all sorts of cool things. So come join Team Human and find the others. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, where we face our greatest fears, share them with others, talk them out, and then break on through to the other side. Yeah, you're on the special 200th episode of Team Human, and we're taking no prisoners but setting y'all free. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, founder of the Media Education Lab and author of Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age, my friend and mentor, Renee Hobbs. I mean, if communication history has anything to say about it, things might get worse before they get better because we got to figure it out. Renee's going to join me in the crucible of self-doubt and try to retrieve my hope for humanity. If you're game for that ride, then you're on Team Human. So... Just a week or two ago, I was talking about how I decided to turn off the WrestleMania passing for national news and focus on my local reality. I was hoping that helping neighbors, engaging in mutual aid, and working on local issues might just engender a kind of solidarity and maybe even eventually trickle up to the way we handle big issues. That maybe the way we interact 
down here on the ground in the real world would stand in such stark contrast to the sensationalist puppet show on Facebook and the cable news that we'd all, especially me, we'd all come to realize that the debates on TV, they're not an adequate representation of who we are, nor are they an appropriate venue in which to work out our collective problems. But so far anyway, I've been proven wrong. It's the same shit down here on the ground. The first local issue I jumped into was our town's decision on whether to opt out of New York State's legalization of cannabis lounges and dispensaries. It was really intense. Some parents are just horrified at the prospect of their kids becoming marijuana users. And in spite of ample evidence that marijuana legalization in dispensaries, they don't increase pot use. You know, if anything, and even according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, they tend to decrease adolescent pot use. I'm guessing because dispensaries just put black market dealers out of business and then they make pot smoking look less cool to kids. Kind of like when everyone's parents went on Facebook and then (laughs) kids didn't want to be honored anymore. I think it's sort of that effect. But It went nuts here. After weeks of of vitriolic rhetoric going back and forth on Facebook and at local board meetings, the town's board of trustees, just like the town, split exactly 50-50 on the issue. And then the mayor, she broke the tie with a compromise. She decided we could permit dispensaries, but then opt out of the consumption lounges. And it looked to me like she had taken that kind of wise, Solomonic approach, that if everyone's a little unhappy, the chances are you've made the right judgment. And besides, art our tiny town with too little parking and strict zoning rules, it's not getting a dispensary anytime soon. The whole thing was kind of symbolic, really more a way of deciding whether marijuana users are to be considered as socially acceptable as alcohol users who have, you know, two liquor stores in our own tiny little town. But as if they were taking their cue from the electoral politics on TV, instead of simply disagreeing with the outcome, the dispensary opponents, they refused to accept the legitimacy of the decision-making itself. They started insinuating that the whole process was corrupt. They accused the board of trustees of predetermining its decision and intentionally ignoring you know, widespread public sentiment. You know, and that's the extra step that concerns me when opponents, when they go meta on a problem to attack the legitimacy of the process or the sanctity of government itself. It's akin to like not accepting election results because you don't like who won. Then you say, oh, they cheated. And so they proceeded to launch this impromptu protest campaign of alternative candidates who've got no prior civic involvement. And It was characterized instead by the fake triggering news blasts about, you know, how the town was 10 to 1 against dispensaries. There's no polls, nothing like that. You know, or that there were secret plans for a 200-unit low-income housing project. Look out! Or they they said that, that trustees intentionally retired during their terms so that their replacements could be corruptly handpicked rather than elected. And none of this is true, but it all sounds... Sounds really scary, right? Especially to kind of NIMBY people. And worse, 
It sets people against one another who should be working together on our mutual challenges. You know, we can't just trash government or break democracy because we agree with certain outcomes. That's taking our cue from the worst of what's going on out there rather than leveraging our home field advantage as friends and neighbors to rise to the occasion of our disagreements with respect and goodwill. I mean, look at what the combative and histrionic tactics have done to Congress. Do we really want to follow that lead as people on the ground. No, we have to live with each other, and we simply must behave under a presumption of good faith. If we can't do it here in our daily lives, I don't know where we can. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So yeah, I am a little uh, worked up here on the occasion of our 200th team human. I'm I'm uh, reconsidering my approach to uh, public conversation. You know, I feel like maybe after all these years of trying to help people uh, deconstruct the media, that maybe um, they're still so susceptible to narratives, to stories that, you know, maybe someone like Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster and wordsmith was right when he told me, Rushkoff, do you want to win? And what he meant was, do you want to inform people and help people understand things? Or do you want them to do the right thing that you think they should be doing? And I always said the former, but now, you know, I'm wondering if, if, uh, if people can handle the truth, if they want to handle the truth, or maybe 10, 15% of people should start worrying about what really the issues are, and the other 85% of people should just kind of be told and given a sweet story so that they behave nicely. I mean, that's a cynical view, right? That's the cynical view of, uh, of a great progressive, uh, Walter Lippmann, really the inventor of public relations, who uh, he would have been considered a progressive, certainly by today's standards. But he said, you know, when push comes to shove, you know, sometimes you do have to just manufacture consent for what the right thing is, right? To get people to wear masks or do whatever it is that's going to be good for them. Um, so they don't just 
go crazy and do wrong things, you know? And smart people or people who really care to read and learn about issues, you could tell them kind of what's really going on or the logic behind it, but spend more time giving people the story they need to behave in ways that are consonant with civilization. And, uh, People like me, I mean, media theory types, programmer be program people, we've always disagreed with that. We've always said, no, no, give people the tools to understand. Let them understand. And I want to retrieve that, right? I want to retrieve that faith. So I've called my great friend Renee Hobbs in to help me through this, to to deliver me from this crucible of despair and to help me <laughs> reaffirm my commitment to media literacy, education, and the smarts of the so-called masses. So here she is, the author of a dozen books on media literacy, including a true masterwork on propaganda, Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age, for which I wrote the introduction, and you should just go get this book right now. Here is Renee Hobbs. Hi, Renee. Welcome to Team Human. I'm so glad to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I'm calling you for, for... help, maybe. I'm seeing above and below. I'm seeing evidence that people like Lippmann and Bernays may have been right. That the effort to actually educate the public on issues of importance so they can make smart decisions on their own behalf may be futile and that people are just responding to the pictures in their heads. And maybe for the majority of folks out there, my job should not have been to deconstruct the media and help people see, which has just led to an almost QAnon-like level of of research and and. Uh, uh, activism and just dedicate myself instead to telling really good stories that get people to just not be so bad to each other. Wow. So you're walking back on the whole Enlightenment project, are you? I am. I've, I'm wondering, what good did this do? I mean, maybe they were happier just being told stuff. I, I always said, here we are, I'm one of the Jews, and we don't spread the good news. We spread the bad news, that <laughs> we're in charge here, that this is it, and we've got to make your own reality. There's no savior coming for you. Well, I understand you're, you, like the rest of us, are in the middle of an epistemological crisis. Yes. Right? So yes. the nature of knowledge is changing, and what are you going to do about it? Right? Right. And um, Bernays and Lippmann were thinking about the relationship between information, news, and democracy at a time when there were gatekeepers up the yin-yang. They're not here anymore. Does the Enlightenment Project still work without the gatekeepers? This is the question we want yes, to worry about. This, this is my question, and and it keeps me up at night. And I know publicly and in my classes, I still say all the right things, you know, all the Enlightenment postman-esque things and Rushkoff and Hobbesian help them. But deep down and here secretly on Team Human, I can ask the real soul-searching questions that I'm having about 
whether this works. I mean, I watched Don't Look Up, and I know that's just a movie, um, and it's just a story, but it seems like an accurate depiction of how we respond collectively to crisis, whether slow or fast moving. Totally with you on the sort of complicated way in which in public we are compelled to uphold our rationalist uh, enlightenment beliefs about democracy while we may in private secretly wonder about the what seems to be a kind of unstoppable force of emotional response and then that whole loyalty sort of are the parts of ourselves that actually feel like our group identities force us to make certain politically correct or other Mm -hmm. choices on behalf of our team, whatever Uh, team that is. But I think either or thinking, the binary thinking is a little bit of a trap, Doug. So it's not that rationality has gone away and been replaced by, you know, this kind of crazy emotional uh, snap judgment kind of thing. And it's not the case that um, rationality has been replaced by team loyalties. It's like all of those things are in play all the time. Right. Right. And so we have to be able to, in a way, I think the last, you know, 20 years has helped us understand that we're, we're discovering how to live in a culture without gatekeepers. And it might take us another hundred years. I mean, if communication history has anything to say about it, things may get worse before they get better because we got to figure it out. Right. But we're trying. I think I feel like it's okay that you have dark days. We're trying to figure it out. So you'd go almost, I mean, there's so many ways to to frame it, but- you could say we're going from a, a kind of a command and control media space to this more cybernetic systems one. We're going from one where we are governed by governors to one that we're going to be somehow ideally a self-regulating society, that there's going to be some other way that we neutralize our most toxic elements and forge collaborative structures. Yeah. And think about McLuhan's insights on this, right? You know, at the beginning of the shift toward an audiovisual culture, right? Moving away from print, he said, look, it's becoming all about storytelling (laughs) and emotions. It's becoming all about uh, the power of the image and the gaze. And it's it's becoming increasingly tribal. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so now the tribalism is on steroids, right? As we find our online communities that reinforce for us the messages we want to hear. And that's not just happening in the red party. That's happening like crazy in the blue party too, right? Right. Um, And so I feel like in some senses that learning to think with all the parts of our brain. I'm reading Jonathan um, Haidt's, uh, what's it called? The rational or the the righteous mind. Uh-huh. <gasps> oh my God. You should have him on team human, the righteous mind. Uh, he's a, he's a, a psychologist. He's a moral psychologist who looks at how our ideas about moral values, um, how they include different elements. And I'm starting to realize that I've been all about, um, care and harm and fairness, fairness and injustice. Mm. This is the classic liberal paradigm for thinking about morality, right? Care and harm, 
and fairness and injustice. But there are other moral systems that are at work in humanity, like um, loyalty, like uh, authority, and sanctity. Hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about how the internet creates places for us to have conversations about what's good and what's bad, what's moral and immoral, what's what has value and what is junk. And I probably need to get practice at looking across all five of those moral systems, not just the two that have that I've been trained for right. uh, at the University of Michigan, at Harvard, <laughs> right? yeah. and through my religious beliefs. It's interesting. I mean, I guess I'm, I got, I've got a, a, a parallel need to, to open to other experiences as well. I mean, for me, you know, I was raised as a, as a, a literate Jew, right? And literate Jew believes, you know, if we, we have a text only religion. We have a, 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 a ban on images, right? You're not even allowed to put graven images in the thing. No pictures. Text is a text only, like an ASCII to religion, right? The text only religion. And I was always, and I wrote this book on Judaism, Nothing Sacred, that was really arguing for the, you know, the Jewish intellectual path and trying to really, I almost called it Judaism after tribalism, to say, let's get rid of all that tribal stuff because that's where all the kind of uh, hate and both you, you hate others and feel special and ethnocentrism, but maybe there are visual and tribal elements of human nature that can that, that aren't just dangerous. They don't just lead to Nazis and stuff or localism of, a, of an awful sort, right? That maybe having some sense of tribe is, is a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, for sure. It turns out that uh, having feelings of tribal identity is deeply, from a DNA point of view, has been really important for our survival, right? And especially during uh, times of sudden change or crisis. And so- in some ways, after the 2016 election, a lot of feelings of crisis have been bubbling up, right? And when people feel in crisis, they go back to their tribe and they take direction from their tribe. And that's been very functional for human survival. And at the same time, another thing that happens during crisis is we look to our leaders to guide us. And so that seems to be happening more, right? And that can right. be very unsettling to those of us who are rooted in the Enlightenment tradition of the rational mind, um, because loyalty and authority are operating not in the realm of rationality. Right. But they do appeal to something. You know, it's, I was, I was uh, watching uh, The Crown, you know, and they're teaching baby Queen Elizabeth about government. And there's this guy who's reading, I forgot the, 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 the book on the monarchy to her, and explaining that, well, we've got parliament for the practical purpose of government, and we've got the monarchy for the dignity of government. And I'm like, dignity? That's an interesting... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Human beings want dignity. Yeah. And, and I understand then that Trump was trying to, in, in his way, to appeal to both, to say, oh, yeah, I'm a businessman, I can do this, but... I'm going to bring back, you know, a certain level of I'll be the daddy authoritarian magical president. Yeah. And our friend Walter Lippmann way back in 1921 said that people rely on thought leaders 
to shape their thinking, that it's a, it's a myth to think that we're creating independent critical thinkers who can think with autonomy, right? That's just ridiculous, right? We're part of a web, an interconnected web of people, and we influence each other, and we rely on thought leaders. The, the, the listeners of Team Human rely on you, Doug Rushkoff, as a thought no. leader. I like to think of it that this is an egalitarian thing, and I'm just resonating with the, I'm not leading their thought. I'm resonating with their intelligence, helping articulate what they're all feeling no better. No, no, not, I'm not some TED Talk person, you know, with better ideas for other people's future. You know, I'm one of us is the whole point of Team Human. Okay. <laughs> but at the same time, I get so many people emailing saying, Doug, you've got to accept that you are leading. What You've got to accept that even if it's a, a, a social construction. Understandable with your identity position that that stance, the stance of thought leader is complicated, but uh, you have owned that position since you were a baby, right? Since you were a very, very young man of wunderkind. Right. So well, that's of course just it feels the person, natural to you. Right. That person who's sitting with his friends and says, hey, guys, let's do this. That's thought leadership. Right. And, and now thought <laughs> leaders are not just those who produce PBS documentaries, are not just those who produce multiple books, are they are not just people with uh, advanced degrees or expertise. Now thought leaders are those social media influencers, those right. people who are telling you about the keto diet, those crazy people who are telling you that th uh, the election was stolen, right? So now thought leaders are coming from everywhere. They're bubbling up. And the criteria to be a thought leader seems to rely less on any expertise or any special knowledge that you have than your ability to be charismatic. And that go takes us all the way back to the Greeks, doesn't it? And right. They, and they told us that uh, ethos, you know, the, the credibility or the character of the speaker could shape and influence the public mind. So it means we can we can no longer, or someone like me, if I've been doing it, can no, can no longer ignore the importance of charisma and narrative and storytelling and packaging and, and rhetoric to the success of important ideas. Right. And, and of course, you've always been a good storyteller, right? And used stories as a way to uh, shape big, complicated, abstract ideas. I feel like one of the things that's what one of the things that I've been thinking a lot more about by studying propaganda is the way in which um, anger can be activated. So there's emotions and then there's emotions, right? <laughs> and certain emotions, you know, the, the whole the whole turning uh, up the metrics of engagement as the platform companies found that if they could make people angry, they could get right. keep people on their devices longer. It's like that, uh, um, that is having a corrosive effect on the quality yeah. of public discourse. And I think media literacy helps people by making them at least aware yeah. of that. And that's a step. Yeah. It's become a three-body problem in a way. It's like instead of uh, you know people who want to help people think and people who want to stop people from thinking, being in this battle, which they've been in for a long time, now the platform itself, the environment has an agenda. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? I felt like scrolls didn't have an agenda as scrolls. They just kind of sat there. Read me or not, you know? Unfurl me. But wait a sec. I got to call you on that. That's totally wrong. Yeah. Scrolls did have an agenda. Scrolls wanted you to think in a linear way. You couldn't start at right. the end. Scrolls had an agenda around promoting a first this, then this, then right. that. And that was an agenda. And right. the internet has an all-at-once agenda. Click, 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 mm. click, click, click. Right? right. And use your and use your use your feeling to move through this web of multiple authors with multiple agendas, sometimes without even being aware of who these people are and what their agendas really are. And that's the dangerous part. Yeah. Although weirdly, you know, I mean, I remember when Trump first won when he won his first term as president. Um, <laughs> that's so mean to do. Um, when, when Trump won, I remember Dana Boyd, our friend, came out with this article on on somewhere, you know, a, a medium or something, arguing that this was the problem of not too little media literacy, but kind of too much, that we had opened a can of worms, that kind of, and given people who weren't ready for it this deconstructive ability, and now they're deconstructing everything. And it really wasn't until the last few weeks when, when, when what urged me to call you that I looked at it and thought, God, is there, is she, could she be right? about this? Because, I mean, oh, when I saw it immediately, I think I texted you right away and said, like, oh my God, what's happening? No. Um, but there's a, there is a certain sense to it that a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Well, I think, the th I think what Dana was suggesting is that asking critical questions about what you watch, see, and read can be dangerous, not just to right. you, but to the institutional power structures that are, are necessary for democratic uh, cultures to flourish. And she's right about that, of course. Asking critical questions is dangerous. <laughs> right. That's why they, they get rid of critical thinkers sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like in some ways after the 2016 uh, election, and certainly Dana's uh, experience of like looking at the dark side, her, you know, the underbelly, the sort of unanticipated consequences of web culture, right? It made her like a canary in the coal mine, very sensitive to that. Um, but asking critical questions has always been dangerous and always been destabilizing. And so she recognized that, yes, uh, asking critical questions is at the heart of what conspiracy theorists do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's what anti-vaxxers do. Right? It's what climate change deniers do. And so she was yeah. right to notice that there's power. It's like this is a hammer, but it can be used for a variety of different purposes. It can be used for morally good purposes and morally questionable purposes. And I feel like let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Right? Let's just recognize yeah. we're in an epistemological crisis where everyone has these, this hammer to ask critical questions, and there are some moral consequences to what we choose to hammer and why. Right, and how we do it. Because there's certainly a great argument to be made for, let's explore uh, Western civilization's reliance on vaccination. 
And what are the long-term consequences of trying to come up with a vaccination for everything? What are the long-term consequences on our immune system as people? You know, are we, it's like, are we, is it equivalent of giving people lots of Prozac, you know, in a world that's hard to, to a, a world that, that that is putting too much anxiety and pressure on us, you know, and you could say, wait a minute, why am I taking this drug? This is, you know, this is forcing con- conformity. And you could say, look, we're throwing antibiotics at every bacteria. It's a losing battle. They're grow- They're mutating faster than we could stop them. And you're just going to grow super fat. I could see that. But there's a a discipline that goes along with critical thinking that that we don't seem to have. Great, great word choice there, Doug. There's a discipline. Uh, you know, when I'm having a sniffle or my ear is hurting or I don't know, something feels achy, I go to Dr. Google. And within a second or so, I get really scared because now I've turned my small little ache and pain into something terribly horrible and dangerous and scary. And why? Why did that happen? Because I was getting information without the disciplinary training and context to really understand it. And I have to go to my doctor who laughs at me and says, Renee, words I don't understand. (laughs) You're an idiot. And I feel like in some ways, that's another reason why I'm such a big promoter. I I feel so committed to um, want to pair intellectual curiosity with intellectual humility, right? Mm. That the only solution to that now that now that people can get access to information without the disciplinary training and expertise that's needed to contextualize it and understand it properly, then the only, what we have to do, we have to be more sensitive to is how, um, how to be humble about the limits of our knowledge, right? And not get uh, rigid in our thinking, um, not to, not to basically prioritize my interpretation over any of a number right. of other interpretations that might provide more context. And then maybe even to trust thought leaders yeah. who have disciplinary expertise. So maybe in the next hundred years, we'll be reinscribing yeah. authority so that we can appropriately follow the thought leaders that help us make the best interpretation of the limits of knowledge. And recognizing the different kinds of expertise. I feel like there's a snobbishness in that, oh, you know, doctor expertise and engineer expertise and, you know, uh, 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 professor expertise. But, you know, I had a, a guy came and fixed my uh, air conditioner. And there was one process where we had to stand there for two hours waiting for something to fill. And I asked him questions and he proceeded to nerd out in front of me. You know, this is a, you know, a Ford 150 driving Trump-supporting air conditioner guy nerded out so deeply on how pressures in HVAC systems work and why most of these guys don't understand what they're doing and they ruin systems and have to replace them and all. And I was like, this guy is a friggin' genius of this. This is And to trust another person, it felt the same as going to a doctor and having them really understand what's wrong and give you the right thing. This guy really understood. He saved me thousands of dollars. He saved my system by using his expertise. And it's beautiful. But we don't 
I feel like I'm living in a society that doesn't recognize that the the so-called blue-collar worker, whatever they are, people are are somehow, you know, bringing a, 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 a something not as as important to the logical equation to the sum of human knowledge. You know, which is what the team human thing is for. It's like, oh my God, everybody's got such deep knowledge. If only we we respected their domain. And this is why every child ages five to twenty-five uh, wants to be a YouTuber when they grow up. Because if we're talking about, you know, Wikipedia being a democratic place, uh, a place where all knowledge can be uh, accounted for, uh, YouTube is the place where all kinds of expertise all kinds of specialized knowledge can uh, flourish. And I, I feel yeah. I feel like in some ways, you know, that harkens back to what Eddie Bernays said about propaganda being essential to the democratic process. You know, he said, oh, if, if instead of just uh, big companies who can afford to spend a lot of money on advertising, right, and push and repeat messages to you over and over and over, if everyone can use the power of, he called it public relations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To express their ideas about what should happen and how it should happen. Then he said labor unions would be able to deliver their messages about the important uh, function they serve in society. And women would be able to have more political power and minorities voices would actually be heard through propaganda through public right. relations. And at the time, well, you know, his critics pilloried him for it. But yeah. it turned out... People like us. <laughs> people like us. But, you know, and, and people always talk about that Virginia Slims or whatever commercial or, or thing he did, you know, where he had the New York debutantes walk down during the Macy's Day Parade smoking cigarettes as their torches of freedom. And we always like to criticize him. It's like, oh, look, you got women to smoke. It's like... Yeah, maybe, but he leveraged the power of a cigarette brand to to launch a women's movement. You know, I mean, this was this were these were progressive values, perhaps slightly cynically uh, uh, advanced, but there's more than one thing going for on. For sure, for sure, and I would say he tapped into the existing shifts going on in the culture for female empowerment. Those, those things right. were happening and he linked his product to that existing set of values. And so in some ways, what's complicated is we're now seeing that, that same practice happening in a bunch of different directions. You know, the stop the steal people, crazy as they are, are linking their movement, right, to a set of values. And in a way, I think the battleground we're we're, we liberals can be sometimes a fear, a feared of, right? Is um, the, the epistemological crisis is linked to a set of values and ideologies, right? About whose vote counts, whose voices mm-hmm. matter. And so I feel like the sooner we're able to um, sort of step into that space of getting more comfortable talking about values and ideology, the better. What's been problematic in my community, of course, is that um, the conservatives have basically created the crisis associated with uh, an idea, that of critical race theory, and they have Mm -hmm. pushed, mobilized people into attacking educators and librarians and people in public schools, right, 
for even exploring issues of race and racism. Now that is a hot mess for media literacy. Once certain ideas have been associated with values that can't be brought into schools, yikes, Houston, we have a problem. Right. And then it becomes hard. So then we have certain uh, certain school districts that are saying that, you know, Nazism has to be taught in a balanced way. <laughs> and they could say, well, if you want to teach slavery in America in a balanced way, then we get to teach Nazism yeah. in a balanced yeah. way. Yeah. Oy. Hey, maybe it's just time to return to the fairness doctrine. What do you think about that? Is that a crazy idea or what? Yeah, Back in the old days... Right? Back in the old days, there was this idea that if you were going to use the powerful megaphone of the mass media, that you had an obligation to be fair. And in some ways, when that went away, hyperpartisanship ruled, right? Right. And uh, Rush Limbaugh was born and, uh, you know, the madness of Fox News. But then you could argue that, I mean, the, the, the fairness doctrine went away partly because, right, Reagan and because they got rid of it, um, but it also got it got put away because the the news function of broadcast media changed. Right. You know they 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 used to have be obligated if they had an FCC license to do a certain amount of public activity for which the news counted. It was not a profitable thing. It was an oblig an obligation. When the fairness doctrine was gone and the FCC obligation to do news went away, then the only reason news stayed was as for-profit entertainment. And then, as as I think, as Adorno would correctly tell us, if your news is for-profit entertainment under capitalism, you will only get fascism <laughs> at, at the end. <laughs> yeah, and here we are. <laughs> Right. Because the purpose of the news is to sell things, not to to inform us. Yep. So in some ways, that's what brings us to our epistemological crisis around maybe we can't work our way out of this mix. Maybe maybe under the um, under the the new reality of uh, surveillance capitalism, our, since our every keystroke is being monetized and our if they know more about us than we know about ourselves, uh, then we're always going to be vulnerable. Um, we're always going to be manipulated in one way or the other. It, uh, even, even in the face of all that, though, Doug, you know, I guess I, I just was born with the optimism gene. You know, I, I'm not yeah. afraid of the future. Um, I recognize that uh, things may get worse before they get better and that really we have to think about this in relation to the long game but you know what the enlightenment helped us to really understand was that um the power of the of both the individual human mind and team human right and i do feel like we're going to get into balance a better understanding about our loyalties and the way in which we construct authority and maybe even the way in which we think about sanctity, right? Like, mm. for instance, wouldn't it be great if over the next five years we mobilized propaganda to get people to feel a spirit of sanctity toward the climate and the greenhouse gases and the carbon being dumped into the atmosphere? What if we could feel a sense of sanctity about the need to protect this planet 
Because I am sick of these wildfires. I am sick of these storms. Yeah. I understand that human-caused climate change is destroying the planet. And a feeling of sanctity toward protecting the planet could mobilize people in ways that rational argument doesn't. Well, that and there goes to, to, to my sort of ethical media question, is the, the construction that I have always bridled against is the construction of if we could only get people to blank, that once we're getting people to do something, it's as if I know what they need and now I'm going to get them to do it kind of by any means necessary and justifies the means as long as I get people to believe what I know to be correct. And, and you know what I mean? And it's like, uh, I did Brecht theater, not regular theater, because at least people could be distant and objective and know they're watching a play. And I'm always scared to use my magical powers of influence to get people to do things with storytelling and stuff. Yeah, I've noticed that about you. That's a very interesting <laughs> observation. That's because you want people to think for yourself because you have strong feelings about autonomy. Like you said, yeah. the, the autonomy of your of your listeners, the autonomy of your readers. But you know, the Greeks suggested to us way back when the very first democracies were founded, that all human language was fundamentally persuasive. That every time mm -hmm. a word comes out of your mouth, there is a persuasive function to it. Now, you can admit yeah. it or you can deny it, Doug. They're right. We inflect. I inflect my language. I'm inflecting. Why am I inflecting? You know, and you could go and then use neurolinguistic programming to say, oh, look at your inflection. You inflect it up here because it manipulates the neocortex cerebellum of the brain here. And then you moved your left arm, which is, you know, going to their quadrant of persuade. You know what I mean? The, they would deconstruct because they, they, they can use it. I mean, when you try to do it, you sound like Al Gore. Right? It never works, right? Hello, I am using neurolinguistic. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds fake, but... But right, everything I've evolved to persuade. I am a walking propagandist. You know, with, how could you not be? Whether my button is done or not is propaganda. Right. And that's because you're part of Team Human. We are not individual uh, monkeys. We are we right. we are part of a community. And uh, the hive mind, the ability for one bee to influence another, is actually what makes the hive successful. Right. Exactly. Listen, listen to me. Warning, warning, warning. Right. You have to be able to alert the other cells around you and say there's something and you're all shouting and listening and right. And how beautiful that the, the bees who are listening to Team Human are themselves then propagating other ideas. And that's how ideas move through a culture. So right. I don't think we need to be afraid and feeding of that. Back. Exactly. Exactly. Right. We don't need to be afraid of that. And ultimately in the long view, we can feel really optimistic about that. Because some part of that is the the respect for the fact that each of us filters ideas and information through our own experiences, unique experiences, that raises questions that are unique to us as individual. That's the fertility of imagination and knowledge that I feel like uh Let's hold on to our respect for that fertility of knowledge to get us through what seems like a complicated, dark time filled with disinformation and propaganda. Yeah. And the, the other illusion of this internet era is that there are more influencers rather than fewer. I, I, 
I feel like there, there's real power law dynamics at play here, and mm. that people are less reliant on local experts and people in their world, the elders in their own community, and they are turning to the the Twitch girl with 90 million followers, you know, rather than, and in some ways, that leads to a paucity of leadership, not uh, an explosion of it. A fragmentation of leadership, right. not a paucity, right? There's a lot of leaders, but they're becoming like micro tribes, micro micro communities. I'm hoping that would, I would rather than be micro communities than a billion people following, you know, eight, you know, Paris Hilton's. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. So that power <laughs> law, that's a really interesting question about eventually will the micro celebrities cluster into a power law? Well, there will really will be eight of them. Based on my experience with my undergraduate students, I would say we're way far away from that because, man, Good. do they follow. And uh, in fact, I think we, they have, we have the opposite problem, really, which is they're so, it's so tribalized. The female students don't have nothing to do with the kinds of media messages that the male students have. The African-American students are consuming media that has nothing to do with the way that white students are. There's like, I think... Um, a lot of sort of um, fragmentation of discourse, which makes us old people long, long back for the common culture function that media serves. Yeah, and maybe Netflix is that new common culture. Uh, it could be, although Netflix sends you out in your little algorithm True. too. I mean, I'm feeling the common culture is the local culture that seems, especially now under COVID, is is you know, really languishing. But at least when I, when I, I live in a town, I walk down the streets, I know old people, young people, black people, white people, storekeeps and doctors. And there's something so beneficial to having this, this wide, this wide assortment of demographics, you know, because we happen to live together. To your HVAC guy, doesn't it? Maybe the future has yeah. in it a celebration of geographic community, which works great for you people within a hundred mile radius of New York City and is probably less great for people who are in the buckle of the Bible Belt or somewhere else, right? Well, at least I got farms for food, <laughs> you know? <laughs> They'll survive a lot easier, you know? Yeah, so the new localism, I don't know. We've been hearing about that for like, a long time though and i'm not so optimistic about that no i don't really see it so much i mean i always want you know yes support your csa and uh, uh you know you buy local food and you'll be healthier and see where your water comes from and and get involved in your public schools and you know there and for all of that there's the the equal and opposite you know let's privatize schools and do vouchers and yeah, go online yeah. and I, I'm leave all these betting, people behind I, i'm gonna go back to my original theme here i'm actually betting for the future what i'm betting on and i'm i'm really talking about my own self too is i have been preoccupied with um care and harm and fairness and justice and i have not Mm. paid enough attention to the role of authority and loyalty and sanctity in my in in my life and in my relationships and in my professional identity as an educator and an activist and so i feel like mm. i want to try to widen my my moral 
lenses, like the glasses that I put on, because I'm getting bored and tired with this fairness and justice and care and harm. I mean, enough said about the limitations of only perceiving the world through those limited lenses. And it's clearly not reaching um, lots of people who are who don't really or who are who find those perspectives to be incomplete. What's well, interesting, though, as someone who who intentionally retrieved and brought sanctity into my discussion since around 1999, um, these are dangerous waters. You talk about sanctity in an academic place. They think you're crazy. They really, it's, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you're now you're Bible thumping or you got faith or something. It's like, I'm talking about the sanctity of life. It's like, and I mean, because there's a, there's a scientistic wave, you know, that, that in the humanities, even since the seventies or eighties, where I see so many of my media studies, people leaving the humanities to turn it into some kind of a social science. And it's like, yeah, they're sociologists. You could do your quantitative analysis and go do all that stuff and find numbers and graphs and K squared, you know, charts and stuff. But this is a, Neil Postman would agree. This is a sacred task. The only weapon in the end, he said, against the the the, the technopoly was religion, right? Wow, wow. So this is actually fascinating to me, Doug. I'm I'm starting to wonder: Have the care, harm, fairness, social justice lenses that we that are dominant in our cultures are they? It, have they become oppressive? as they negate the validity of these other moral lenses. Because it might be that part of the movement, the tension, the red and blue tension in our country is due to the fact that um, in some parts of democratic America, those are the only lenses to be used and, and you get ridiculed or humiliated if you apply other moral lenses. And um, that's, that's a form of oppression, right? And I felt the oppressiveness. Yeah. I mean, I really, I, I, I'm, I sometimes try to be politically incorrect just to watch people have a little shush, shush, shush about it, right? Yeah, it's so ridiculous. But, but you're right that there's a um, the the structural analysis uh, and bias of some of the the social justice analysis negates human intention. Right, what you meant, what you mean, what you intend doesn't matter, and I don't think that's a that's an appropriate reading of Marx. Marx was so much finally about um, when he was arguing that economics was social. He meant social. I mean that that I'm making a burrito for you. You know, <laughs> there was love. There's love in literature. If you if, if you read him, it's I, I see Marx as, as a humanities a writer, not a, an economics writer. <laughs> and in some ways, Marx was trying to heighten uh, tribal awareness. Yeah. So that workers could use their power, their collective power mm-hmm. against, uh, you know, a capital. And so this idea that uh, n- new forms of tribal identities are actually 
what we kind of need to respect. We need, we don't need to be afraid of that, right? We need to honor that and and respect that. I feel like in some ways the internet can make it possible. I mean, we were so excited about the Arab Spring. Remember that back then when we thought, (laughs) ah, topic, we thought that this would be enough and it was like not enough. Right. Well, there was no right? theory of change. It, well, I think the idea of the power, uh, the, the only one moral lever was at work there, which yes. is this, uh, you know, sort of shared group identity. Right. Mm. And Occupy was real, helped us realize that, you know, there were lots of different identities and positions within this shared group and there could be strength in that. We yeah. overlook our differences to look at our similarities. Right. And I, I I do feel like I hope that in my lifetime, I, I'm angry that my children and grandchildren are living in a culture where, where red and blue are like good and bad and true and true and false. And I, I think that's wrong. I think that's really wrong because I do believe in the enlightenment project. You need to encounter um, false messages and untruths to know what the truth is. Right. And w- part I, I do trust people to make decisions that are in their best interest. I do uh, recognize that we're all imperfect as we mix the world. But, um, yeah, I, we got to get beyond this, um, you know, real erosive uh, polarization. And I think the only way to do it is through communication right. and education. Right. Which are, which are I mean, two, two I was going to say industries, but, yeah, we can call them two industries that are in peril. Mm-hmm. You know, for different reasons. You know, one, your communications is is too profitable, and education is not profitable enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never thought of it that way. That's interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. There are real implications to that framing, by the way, because in a way, what's so fascinating is that there's pressures on uh, either both ways, right? The so the whole do-it-yourself um, YouTube culture is pushing against uh, Hollywood and uh, mm-hmm. big big communication, and um, and the Ivy Leagues are pushing uh, <laughs> on the on the uh, on the issue of education yeah, and profitability. I'm worried for the Ivy Leagues, even you know, uh, uh, my daughter. Well, my daughter is is uh, is uh, finally applying to college now, and. I got into Princeton. I back in whenever that was, 1979. I would not get into Princeton today. The kids who get into these schools now are are they're they're do-gooders. They are they are I mean not all of them. I don't want to be mean to anybody, but but there's a conformity. There's a uh, to to kids who are are agreeing, I'm going to get all A's. I'm going to do what my teachers want. I'm going to get high on these tests. And um, there there seems to be less room in these uh, institutions of higher learning for the weirder, independent thinkers. Wow, interesting point. And I would agree up to a point. I think um, I I think. It, I think there's two things possibly going on. I don't. I do think that yes, education is rewarding conformity, and kids arrive in you know sixth grade saying, "What hoops do I have to jump right. through? I'm going to jump through the hoop so I can get to Harvard, right?" But when they're not in school, they're out like on Twitch 
uh, watching streamers and they're <laughs> they're making their little influencer videos and they're watching TikTok and making dance videos, right? So there's flourishing of sort of mm, remix creativity happening uh, among these very high achievers uh, when they're not in school. It's just that they don't, it's just that school rewards this only right. this one track. So how could we how could we modify that so school could celebrate the whole human being, right? Not just the high achiever who tests well. Right. And it's hard because it's gotten so automated. Everybody can do a standard application. They can apply to 3,000 schools at once. And these poor admissions people, I don't know if they're poor, but they, you know, they've got to, if you've got to read 100 applications in an evening, you're going to use the numbers and you know, the kids that, that did all the high achieving, you know, that's just the bar to then be considered. And then you'll see if they can write essays about their Twitch videos. Which brings us back to storytelling, right? So what compels human attention and interest has always been storytelling, right? So when your daughter writes that kick-ass college essay, it's going to be a story, Right. She's going to write a story and that story is going to grab people by the throat and say, wow, what an original human being she is. Although interestingly, the college counselors, they all say now, well, you got to think about how your essays work together to form a complete picture of who you are. So they're, they're not just writing essays, they are crafting an identity. Oh, yeah, but teenagers are good at that. They've been crafting an identity <laughs> since they were born. <laughs> They've been self-fashioning one way or another, right, since they picked up their first iPad. <laughs> They're well prepared for the task. Oh, my gosh. All right, well, I feel a little bit better. Are you, are you over your crisis? You, yeah, you, well, I'm not over it. <laughs> this is going to be the rest of my life. But I, I, I'm... I think partly because I was raised as a Jew whose relatives were murdered by Cossacks. Um, I've borne more fear of propaganda and story and rumor than might have been necessary, right? I was raised, you know... By, by parents and grandparents who told me, you know, your great-grandfather was hanged because people believed, you know, protocols of the elders of Zion. And, you know, and we've got to, you know, educate people and be very non-fiction-y so that people don't get swept up again in a crazy story and come for you. And I, I think that uh, it's a bit harsh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of ways to change hearts and minds. Right. And um, it's an interesting thing about how that position gives um, the communicator a lot of power. Right? Yeah. So in a way, you've always had respect for the powerful function of communication because that's part of that story, right? Be afraid of these powerful communicators who can shift reality. And I actually think I'm really over that now. You know, this whole disinformation, misinformation stuff. Yeah, I I, I get it. But don't just make me afraid, right? Uh, I got to get beyond fear to actually take action. Yeah, I know. And that's why it's funny now. I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine for students to see the social dilemma and all that and, and learn about the evils of social media. But the underlying premise is that this stuff necessarily works, that Facebook is that good, that human beings are being programmed by whatever they look at, wherever they set their eyes. No, they're not. 
No, they're not. They still have autonomy. This Mark Zuckerberg's not that good. Cambridge Analytica is not that good. These are just business people. And if the, the extent to which you blame Cambridge Analytica and Facebook for what happened to America is the extent to which you are buying their sales propaganda of the effectiveness of these bullshit primitive tools. Yeah, that is such a that is a, such an important point to make. And of course, it all goes back to Baum and the Wizard of Oz, right? It turns out that the great and powerful Oz is just a guy, right, behind a curtain. And really the job of unmasking that power and recognizing its um, its its form, its characteristics, its structures, this is very liberating, right? And it can happen for kids starting in starting in three and four and five years old. It's not magic to gain that sense of autonomy and, and the, the ability to make sense of the powerful forms of communication around us. It's not magic, but um, parents well, that can- is magic. That's, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's its that's own what, form of magic. Right. That's what magic is, right? <laughs> if it's, or it's certainly closer. That's closer to magic than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Seeing it, seeing behind the curtain, that's your initiation to the magical world. Oh, that's what it was. Well, and yeah. even more importantly, you're illustrating through your show how it happens. It happens through dialogue. Mm. It happens through discussion. So it's not an app. It's not a curriculum. It's not a video. It's not a program. It's a process of dialogue. It's the give and take and exchange of ideas yeah. That's what ignites the human mind. And that's what creates Team Human. Right. And and if nothing else, the example of, oh, Doug's got a problem. He's soul searching. He's upset. What what does he do? He turns to Renee. Here's my problem. Here's my soul. Here's my crisis. How do we work this? And Renee thinks about it and comes back. Oh, I see. Well, I'm working on it like this. Oh, okay. I mean, you know what I mean? This is what we're here for. This is why there's more than one person. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And thank God. And thank God we can get by with a little help from our friends, right? That's how I'm going to get through the semester is I'm going to be able to count on my media education lab friends and my dialogues and ways to to talk about my problems with teaching. Because, you know, I as I as I struggle with how to teach this generation right? I run into all kinds of paradoxes and contradictions. Mm. And I, I, I've learned so much to actually just uh, share that, right? And get advice and get ideas, get another way of thinking. Because my friends yeah. can often decenter me out of my, out of my own limitations and solve my own problems. And, and you know what, and I want to tell people, you know, the, 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 I think that your, your masterwork is your latest book. Yeah, it's called Mind Over Media, Propaganda, Education in a Digital Age. Right. Mind Over Media, Propaganda, Education in a Digital Age. The thing that's so great about it as a, 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 even a layperson's book on propaganda is that engaging with how do you teach propaganda is the greatest window to understanding propaganda. Do you know what I mean? To go, you go meta on propaganda becomes our way in. So it's not a book about propaganda. It's a book about how do we wrestle with living inside a propaganda sphere? How do you make people aware of the, the, 
the atmosphere, the environment of propaganda? How do you denaturalize it, you know, in, in a way so that you can recognize it? And that, to me, is why, and not just as a media educator, that's why I read it and I go, ah, oh, this, is, this is the way, this is the, the way to teach propaganda to people, is to have them think about how would they teach <laughs> propaganda, you know? Well, we both have always had a predilection for the meta, haven't we? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But now everybody seems to. It's the new thing. We were there first. Hey, that'd be a nice topic for a future episode. Help me understand the the mainstreaming of meta, will ya? Ah, I will. It started with Beavis and Butthead, but um, <laughs> uh, which I got teased for analyzing in 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 serious tones back then. But remember, back then you couldn't. You couldn't, TV wasn't considered uh, literature. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah, I wrote a 50 page paper on Saturday Night Fever. So I definitely got that yeah, there you back go. when it was not cool and now it's cool, right? So, but yeah. in some ways, um, that brings new problems, doesn't it? That brings new problems to our yeah. field and sure. to our discipline that we could explore in the future as we think about, you know, what is media studies in the 20th, 21st century? And how, do, how does media study as a field continue to be relevant um, to the I changing know. needs that students have? And how does it get away from being vocational preparation for the next, uh, next set of influencers and, and sponsored content sellers? I know, which is the which is what most schools would love media studies departments to be. <laughs> How do we sell ourselves as that while doing something else? Well, I love you lots, Renee Hobbs. Thanks for having me on Team Human. This was a fun conversation, Doug. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was the author of Mind Over Media and the founder of the Media Education Lab at University of Rhode Island, Renee Hobbs. You can find out more about Renee and her work at teamhuman.fm, where you can find out about all of our guests and become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and engineered by Luke Robert Mason. A special shout out and thanks to our founding producer and engineer, Stephen Bartolome, and to all of you for your support of our collective and continuing intervention in the machine. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Taking us out today, a new track by the band Eclipsing Binary, who are members of Team Human and sent us this song, The Soul in the Machine. Thanks again for sending that one to us. The special thing I can think of that we regular biological humans have that the robots don't is soul. sensibility is all the stuff that the arch atheists will say don't exist that's all we got the possibility that we live in a moral universe that we have a conscience a sensibility that we come from a place of meaning and you could say it's not a real thing that it's like some superstitious projection, but that may be 
really good at the what. They're really good at the how. They're better than we are in all those ways. They're gonna be smarter, they're gonna be faster, they're gonna be more productive, but they don't have the why. Or to the right and the wrong. As projected as the soul of my little Grogu doll, well, uh, on a certain level, I don't really care. I am fine for the majority or even all of my meaningfulness here in this universe to be a projection of other people projecting that into me. And I promise I will keep projecting that meaning onto you. If we've got nothing else, we've got each other. If we've got nothing else, we've got each other. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 